the start of the four-day week was actually sitting there going, well, actually, you know, I can see how people who otherwise would tell you they're working very hard, they have lots of little things happening within their day that mean that they are not as productive as they might be. Now, my thesis then was, well, if it's two and a half hours of productivity a day, and that does apply to my business, I only need to find 45 minutes of additional productivity within each day to actually get the same output over four days, not five. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an incredible leader who is an innovator, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and absolute human resource disruptor. He completed a master's, uh, an MA in law and archaeology at the University of Cambridge, attended Harvard Business School's program for management development, and is associate of the Chartered Institute of Bankers. His financial services career commenced in the UK before holding senior executive roles at Macquarie Bank, City, Tower, County NatWest, and was chairman at the Australasian Wealth Investments. Our special guest then became a director of Best Invest, acquired and purchased Perpetual Trust, founded Complectus, and made the game-changing move of creating Perpetual Guardian. He is currently the chairman of Regional Facilities Auckland, PaySource, and Perpetual Trust. I'm pleased to introduce to you the catalyst behind the four-day week. Saved the historic 1904-built classic racing yacht Ariki and is proud host of the three-day weekend, Andrew Barnes. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, you're all the way up there in Dublin on a, on a rainy morning. But you were born not too far away from there in the thriving heart of Preston, England. Were you the disruptive child of that town? Uh, I don't think so. No, I mean, in fact, in many ways, I was, uh, you know, I was quite conventional uh, with regard to, to my upbringing. It's one of the things that I've always, you know, looked back on. I, I'm, I'm the freak of my family in that everybody else was artists. Whereas I took a path into into business, um, and my parents were all incredibly being risk averse. I think it's a function of the the generation that had that had been born and lived through the the war, and the, certainly the the fairly difficult years that followed that. So, you know, it, I was I was straight down the line for most of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> So we all have big dreams as children, you know, how were you going to leave a big mark on the world, you know, when you were young? I was going to be a naval officer. Uh, I always wanted to be a naval officer. Um, that was the thing I'd always wanted to do. Um, and broadly, 
you know, I did. I mean, I joined uh, I joined the Navy uh, when I was at university. Uh, and that was, you know, meant to be this the fulfilment of a dream. Um, it, it was rather more of a nightmare, to be honest, because it was Margaret Thatcher first term. I think the there was almost no ship that was uh, going to sea in those days. So I uh, I lasted about three years in the Navy uh, before coming out and then sort of casting around and trying to work out what the hell I did next. So what drew you towards an education in law and archaeology? Oh, well, archaeology had always been a passion. Uh, law, I felt, would give me a... I mean, it's the conservatism of my parents coming through. Law, I thought, would be a sensible career. Um, and it, I found law very dull. Uh, I'm a terrible bush lawyer now as a consequence, whereas... Uh, you know, archaeology is something that I dabble in from time to time in that you want to do archaeology as an amateur. You can't possibly do it as a job. If you do, you find you go down to a dig these days and, and it's got the uh, most highly educated, lowly paid workforce of, of, of almost any uh, industry anywhere. So I, I, I was not that passionate that I wanted to, to spend my days in a in a in a field shoveling mud so I decided that you know you had to look elsewhere for a career so can you recall your first ever interview in the financial sector and how did it go uh, it would have been HSBC I think think going back um well it went okay because I, I they offered me the job but i was uh, i was too conservative um or too state to even want to travel particularly in those days so they offered me a role and starting off in british bank of the middle east i think it was and uh i decided that no i would uh, i i went to the job that i did for my second interview which was uh with NatWest, um, which was, you know, conventional retail banking in a provincial UK town. I was very dull in those days. <laughs> so while we're on interviews, you know, for you, what are the key characteristics that you look for when hiring staff? Uh, creativity, really. Uh, I mean, I think I was the, I was probably the last generation that went through where discipline that one had done at university was not really that relevant for uh, the career that you then chose. And now I think, you know, when you, you get a lot of candidates, more often than not, they're all coming from a finance, business, law, economics background. I was, you know, as I said, I was a broadly an archaeologist. Uh, I can remember late in later life recruiting a fine arts graduate who was probably the the best analyst of complex derivatives I ever came across because his brain was just wired a different way. So for me, I've never been that fussed on the discipline that somebody's done i think now we have to think fairly carefully about what our industry is going to look like 
in the, the years to come. And it's clearly evolving quite quickly. So I actually need people who can think laterally uh, more than anything else now. Yes, there will be the odd role, which is technical, and you've got to have a specific discipline. But for people in general roles, um, I think you need that, that spark of, of creativity to think differently because uh, all businesses are evolving so fast these days. So we're all on a steep learning curve when we start out in our careers. You know, what was the biggest learning curve for you during your first roles in kind of County Nat West and the other financial institutions? Yeah. Uh, well, I, fun enough, it's the same message. It, it, it is that actually what I found very, very quickly is that there was a lot of groupthink. Uh, you know, you would see solutions to problems being the same tired old thing that would be trotted out again and again and again. Um, and I found in my career, early career, that I wasn't following that path. So usually I got landed with uh, jobs which were sorting out problems from previous um, financial market bubbles. Um, I think I've done everything from, you know, restructuring property deals. I've done restructuring shipping companies, of which I knew very little. Uh, you know, depended on what had been the previous, the previous crash, <clears throat> you'd end, I'd end up being the the person that became very quickly the go-to guy, and that happened very, very young, early on in my career. Um, uh, I, when I was, I think, 25, I was doing a simultaneous arrest of uh, 11 ships spread across the globe, um, whereby literally an arrest literally requires you to uh, get somebody on board to nail the writ to the mast and, and then get the crew off and put a brand new crew on. I mean, quite complex, uh, quite complex transactions. But, you know, they were, I found my arts background coming from a, a family of artists, I found that very helpful because I would look at things in a, in a different shape, in a different pattern. Uh, and that's something that I, I found very interesting as I went through my career because I, I kept thinking most of the time I was hopeless at banking because I didn't really focus on the, you know, I wasn't interested in the accounting. I wasn't interested in the, in the numbers numbers side of it but i understood numbers but i was able to structure transactions using a different skill set so there's a theme of curiosity coming through here so what led you to moving to australia as a 27 year old i got sent like, like every good person going to australia <laughs> 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 um, i um the stock market crash of 87 um I got, uh, I, I walked into the office on the Tuesday. My boss uh, called me and asked me if I'd uh, got a valid passport and said, I need you in Sydney on Friday. And I went for a month in 1987 and uh, stayed in Australia for 20 years. Wow. So how was that cultural adjustment when taking on that leadership role in Australia? Australia, I found, I mean, obviously the country has changed enormously over what would now be the last sort of almost 30 years. Um, 
I think it's very interesting when you shift from what are, from from one English speaking jurisdiction to another, um, and you have a natural assumption that the country is the same. And Australia in those days, still, you'd look on buildings outside, and the Union flag would be flying, and it was still. It was, it, there were things in there that you recognised, reminded you of, of where you come from. But, in fact, the, you, the way Australians work and the way that Brits worked was entirely differently. And I found that to be... I mean, A, I enjoyed it because hey, that's why I stayed in the Southern Hemisphere for so long. But but you can very quickly make the mistake that because people speak the same language, they, they run the same way, they think the same way. And the, the biggest challenge is to understand how you manage people from what you think is the same culture but isn't. And Australia is like that. You know, as a Brit, you can very easily, uh, I think, you know, you come across as the whinging pom very quickly if you don't recognise that, Australians work hard but have a casual overlay whilst they are doing it, whereas you don't get that self-same thing or didn't get that self-same thing in the UK. UK was a lot more formal uh, and a lot more hierarchical in the organisations, which you didn't really see. Again, in, the, in those days, again, the world's changed, but in those days you didn't see it in Australia. And if you get it wrong, you'll just become ineffectual. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that it's a great way to describe, you know, the, the way Australians work. And, you know, we, you see it in New Zealand. You obviously work there as well, where once again, mm. it's a different way of living and a different way of doing things. Is Yeah, I reckon I was very lucky. I arrived the day, I think, literally the week before the Melbourne Cup from memory. And so, you know, it was a big shock why why the whole company stopped for a horse race. But it, it gave you a very, a, a pretty good insight in into the psyche that was in the country. <laughs> so you talked about moving to Australia when you had the stock market crash of in the 1987, I think, is that correct? Yeah. And, but then you obviously you worked in that financial sector in the lead up to the global financial crisis of 2008. What, what was, what was the like then in that financial sector you know we kind of get this impression that everyone was kind of getting a bit cocky and are getting a little bit overconfident before that hit uh look i i keep getting into trouble when i start talking about this stuff um basically finance there there are two core lessons in finance first of all lesson number one there is absolutely nothing new under the sun uh, and secondly, we have a broadly 15-year cycle of memory yes. in finance. And so what happens is a regime whereby we repeat the errors broadly over a 15-year cycle. Uh, I used to describe it as being too generous, too tough, too tight. Um, and usually what happens is that when we reach a crash, um, the instant reaction is to, you know, slam on the brakes to really try and pull things in. Slightly, slight change of action last time round, I admit, but pull it in so that everything you try and 
close everything down because everything's too bad. You then say, I've learned that lesson. I'll never do it again. So you keep it tight for a series of years. And then somebody comes in with a bright idea and says, actually, why don't we do this brand new thing? Now, that brand new thing is merely a repeat of something that happened 15 years before. And they start getting market share. Then the whole of the market reacts to that. And the next second, you're falling over yourselves. You're being far too generous again. And then you get a shock and the whole thing falls into a screaming heap. Now, you are seeing all the same criteria come out, for example, now, as you were seeing in you know, 2008, let's go beyond that. Let's go to the late 90s dot-com bubble. Yeah. Um, the, the cycle is exactly the same. And, and I think in the lead-up to the GFC, you know, it was fairly clear that, you know, credit um, was very, very easily obtainable. Um, I think... You, the, some of the, you know, the, the the tangible physical external shocks that we can potentially see in the economy at the moment weren't there at that time. But many of the similar characteristics that we are seeing of the rise of um, businesses like, you know, Afterpay mm. is merely a reflection of the sort of environment that we're sitting at the time, which is the second tier lenders and if i go back further um and go back to the 80s early 90s you know no different than you were seeing with groups like bond or adelaide steamship uh you know those all groups were were adopting similar issues there was free flow of money without very much analysis into you know in those days it would be the corporates so uh, i think that the the you know the, the the problem is with this so i was working at city at the time you have you know the the senior executives of the business saying well as long as the music's playing we're going to keep dancing so everybody knew this was likely to come to a screaming heap but if there is no real sanction on you in the finance industry which there isn't really you keep going until the very last second because it's very lucrative to do that. It's fascinating how the work, the world works in cycles, and mm. you know, finance is no different. Fi- finance is absolutely no different, and sadly, we do not learn. So you know, we're doing we're doing exactly the same thing again. The interesting thing I would say now is that the cycle between last time and this time is shorter than I would have expected. But, uh, you know, basically you're seeing, you know, replica CDOs already being pushed into the market. You're seeing um, lenders lending to second tier companies who are then lending on to uh, retail uh, clients. Um, And, you know, the regulator, the the senior executives of the bank haven't joined the dots that actually they are lend this corporate line, which they're no doubt saying is nice and safe, is going into entities with almost no capital and 
is then probably going into secondary lending. And in New Zealand, we obviously had the finance company collapses um, uh, of the around the time of the GFC. We're just rebuilding these self-same businesses under different names. It's it's very very interesting that. Uh, the collective memory of this has been so short. So speaking about memory, was there a moment in time when you realised you were destined to be a leader? Um, It's a difficult one. I think not really initially. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'd had the liberty of of going to, to, or luxury of going to places like Dartmouth, and actually, I still maintain that the military is probably one of the best leadership schools that you can go to anywhere in the world. If you are going to ask, you know, young men and women to do the unthinkable and to keep going doing the unthinkable, then that's leadership in our businesses. Very often we're, we're extraordinarily capable managers but actually inspiring people the ability to inspire people to do great things i mean it's a totally different discipline so in many ways i think for me the 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 turning point was city in australia when i was asked to turn around what was a very struggling business and I basically trashed almost everything I'd ever done before in terms of the way that I approached the problem. So I approached it almost going back to first principles of the sort of stuff that you'd been taught, that had been talked about when I was, you know, in the Navy about what it was about leadership. And I focused far more on leadership and communication in that process than probably I'd ever done in any other business. And the results were, were extraordinary. And we, we ch- turned around, you know, a failing business and made it the best performing business of its kind in city in Asia Pacific in something like 18 months. And so that's probably the point where my own leadership style, I think, evolved. And actually, at that point, I started to think, actually, maybe I might be quite good at this. So I'm curious to know, how would your HR manager describe your leadership style? Uh, well, I've literally just lost my HR manager, unfortunately, because I got nicked by uh, another law firm to, uh, I think, implement things like flexible working and maybe who knows the four-day week. So, uh, but, but I think her view um, was simply that, I mean, she did say that she had never ever worked with somebody quite like me now uh, that's not at all a compliment (laughs) 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 it's fair to say uh i i i am relatively creative in what i i do and i also make decisions very quickly and I therefore also, and I think this is part and parcel of, of my background, because having come through 
or having worked in, in risk roles as well as having worked on the front line in finance, I have, a, a, I think, quite an acute risk in te, uh, antennae. And so I will look do things which people will say, well, four day weeks is an example. You know, how on earth could you take the risk of doing that? And yet the reality is I sit there, I've analysed it in my head and say, well, actually, no, this is what I think is the consequence. And, and actually not making the decision is the bigger and more riskier option. And therefore I go in and do that. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I just think she'd say, well, she will no doubt say at some point because I'm quite sure our replacement will eventually phone her up and, 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 and she'll probably tell them to, <laughs> to buckle up. Uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the reaction, I mean, her initial reaction was as incredulous as anybody else's when we decided to, to give the four-day week a go. And, and, you know, for me, I look at that and say I didn't think that was a high-risk a high uh, decision. But you, if you're sitting where somebody else is, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily come across that way. So let's let's move into that. So you you come up with this idea that was that you thought was so good, but your HR manager deleted it. You know, yeah. So so what sparked that initial idea to revolutionise how we work, and make the call in February two thousand eighteen to change the way employees of perpetual guardian worked? Well, it's very simple. I, I I'm most dangerous when I'm on a plane because on a plane I have time to read, and I read. Uh, an article in The Economist that talked about productivity within the work week uh, and within the work day and quoted two surveys. And it was a British survey that said they were the Brits were productive for two hours and 30 minutes and a Canadian survey of a law firm which said they were productive for one and a half hours. Um, and I looked at that and thought, hang on a sec. Is that happening in my business? And so the, the, the start of the four-day week was actually sitting there going, well, actually, you know, I can see how people who otherwise would tell you they're working very hard, they have lots of little things happening within their day that mean that they are not as productive as they might be. Now, my thesis then was, well, if it's two and a half hours of productivity a day, and that does apply to my business, I only need to find 45 minutes of additional productivity within each day to actually get the same output over four days, not five. Okay, so one, is it right? Is it worth trying? And then secondly, that then leaded leads to things like well actually you know giving that day might resolve some of these productivity issues so i thought it would be worth running the experiment and and that's basically what it was when i launched it was a a very simple let's experiment let's see if this is right what happens and you know obviously the results were very surprising. <laughs> so talking about surprising, I can imagine the response of your board wasn't so positive when you mentioned you were going uh, to give all your staff a day off per week and continue paying them for five. So how did that well, discussion look, go well, down? 
Well, I, I cracked that problem by not having that discussion. <laughs> I merely announced the four-day week on national television, and they heard it with everybody else. So um, I, I was a little bit more structured later on. But the first time around, I mean, I I have the luxury of, of, of you know, being the at that stage, I was the sole shareholder of the company. So I had the luxury, ultimately, of being able to say, well, look, I just think we're going to give it a go. Now, the reality was it was a trial. Uh, it was structured at a certain point of the year where uh, I think it fell over the period with Anzac Day and a couple of the other statutory holidays. So when you actually looked at it as a period of time, we weren't actually risking that much, we didn't think, to try it at that point. Um, so, you know, I mean, I clearly don't have rather I'd asked, but it, it was, I just felt it was a, you know, we were doing a six-week trial initially, we extended it to eight. We really thought it wasn't, I really thought it wasn't that big a risk just to see what would happen. And the reality is we because we brought in and i think that was the i wouldn't say i was a master stroke but because we brought in researchers alongside the trial the benefit was that then as we went through and as we finished we'd got you know pretty good objective research on what had been happening within the company how it had been received uh, and obviously productivity had improved and profitability had improved. So, it, it, you know, it's a relatively easy discussion after you've got when you've got the evidence. Um, but it was greeted with a degree of scepticism, not just at the board level, frankly, but at the leadership level within the company. And I, I, I think they it's often the leaders within the company who probably have more scepticism about an initiative like this. So how did you get their buy-in? You know, obviously, you need buy-in from your staff to really be able to implement this effectively. Mm. Uh, uh, the four-day week in, in the concept that I talk about is really uh, almost what I would call bottom-up re-engineering. So uh, essentially, the message to the team was, look, I want to do this. Um, I have absolutely no idea how we're going to do it. And at the same time, you have to appreciate this, this for what it is. This is a genuine offer from me that I want to try and give you a day off. In return, you've got to give me the same level of productivity as I'm currently enjoying. So it, 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 this evolved into this comment of 100 1800 100% of pay, 80% of time, 100% productivity. So your staff, in general terms, there are some who immediately jump on the bandwagon and say, this is fantastic. I'm, you know, give, give it everything. There's a, a whole other bunch of people who will say that actually this is going to put too much pressure on me. I'm working hard already. And then there's a third bunch who will sit there and say, actually, you know, why I don't want this anyway, because I want to come into the office five days a week. Um, so you get a mixture of emotions. Leadership, for the most part, is people sitting there saying, well, actually, 
A, this isn't going to work. B, I had to work hard to get to my position. And C, I've got to manage how we're going to get this, put this in place. And actually, in this instance, you can't do that. You actually have to step back, allow the team to think about how they're going to do this and what the changes of behavior are going to be. And then as a leader, you can step in and put some shape around that. And so it's it it's very challenging and it actually does shine a, a pretty intense light on your leadership team as to people who are competent managers or people who are competent leaders. Because to make this work, you need leadership, you don't need management. Cool. Great great observation there. So so during the initial trial period, you know, as they went into that first week, was there quite a bit of adjustment that was occurring week after week or were you seeing the results straight away? No, we saw results straight away. And, and I think this comes back to to what's actually going on here. So what we've done is we have made time the scarce resource. Right. Normally, when you restructure a company, the first thing you're doing is you're talking about you have cost reduction of X. And so cost becomes the driver. Can I cut here or there? And that's quite often a process or a person or, or what have you. But what's happening here is basically you're saying to each individual, how can you change the way you work so that you will deliver better productivity. Now, that is how much time is dead time within a day? Now, you think about a typical person come into the office, have a cup of coffee, a bit of a chat, probably look at some emails, maybe a bit of social media, then get down to work, then get disturbed because somebody comes into an open plan office, taps them on the shoulder, says, you know, can you help me with this? And, and, yeah, that goes on all the way through the day. Um, uh, it, it's sufficiently disruptive that the analysis suggests it's it's the equivalent of having a 10-point drop in your IQ. So you then have, uh, you know, another break, um, another chat. You've got some problems with the kids. You've got to get hold of a tradesman. You've got to do all of those tasks that you have to get done, which usually the person is only that you need to get hold of. It's only during the working. When you add all of those up, that's when you come back to this, what sounds like a ridiculous number of, you know, two hours, 30 minutes or the latest survey, two hours, 53 of actual productive work in a day. So what you're doing in the four day week is you're saying to people, do you want a day off or do you want to look at, Facebook. Do you want a day off or do you want to be a little bit more focused at work? Do you want a day off? Do you want to wear 10 meetings, which you don't really need to be in for an hour instead of making them half an hour? So what you actually got was very, very quickly, you got changes of behavior, lots of individual changes of behavior that when added together, delivered an outcome. Now, Admittedly, you also got some people empowered to say, I'm doing this task. It's a complete waste of time. Either could we do it differently or should we not do it at all? Because they could do it knowing that they their job was actually safe. 
I wasn't looking to cut people. I was looking to cut hours. And that is quite liberating as far as uh, an employee, staff member is concerned. So, so we actually did see behavioral changes very, very quickly. For example, internet surfing on the top five sites in New Zealand dropped 35%. Now, you know, that's quite a significant spread across the whole company, the whole amount of time they were doing. That's quite a significant change. And that was an indication of individuals changing their behavior, not some, you know, structural reorganization. So how did your customers react to it? Because, and, and how did you evolve to ensure that your customers' needs were being met? Well, we, first of all, we don't do, I mean, everybody, if I would be a very rich man, if, if every interview that starts, you know, starts with, how would you like to have a three-day weekend? Um, the answer is business doesn't have a three-week, three-day weekend. What we do is that each team sets out uh, its pattern of work, and maybe this week you might get Monday, next week you might get Friday. It revolves. There are some exceptions. Some teams, somebody will say, I always want Tuesdays, and if nobody else wants a Tuesday, Tuesday is your day. But we said it was very clear from the get-go. Our customer service standards could not drop. We run 16 retail branches. They had to be open, normal hours. So that, for us, was absolutely important, that the, the customer experience could not be damaged in any way. Now... Actually, what we got, of course, is we got a more enthusiastic workforce, a workforce that was refreshed, uh, a workforce was more empowered. I mean, our empowerment uh, statistics, the teamwork, um, positive view of the company, all of those sort of things went up about 40%, 40% from before the trial. They were pretty high beforehand to afterwards. I mean, these things went up to stratospheric levels so you actually had an enthusiastic um empowered uh, workforce now i put it to you you know how many times you've gone into a shop and you've got a shop assistant there is really can't be bothered you know drag i've got this shift they're not helping you they're not help getting a sale they're not you know giving you a great experience so what we found, of course, is that, yep, the cust- not only was the customer experience maintained, if anything, it probably improved. Um, and at the same time, people found innovative ways to even make it better. We have small branches on the South Island. They all budded together. Most of our initial contacts come over the phone. Bizarrely, the number of people answering telephones at any one office went up because they were put themselves on a phone loop. Now, we hadn't thought of that. They thought of that. And then um, I think the the enormity of what we'd done started to come through when our people would be reporting that people would be waving at our branded cars and giving them the thumbs up. Brilliant. And, and actually starting to say, and and, and I got a letter from, from one uh, staff member uh, and it said, uh, you know, 
we've we've seen you know the said you know the, the, the to the person that we've seen this first of all we now understand what you do which was great because everybody always thinks we're insurance uh, and which we're not but we understand what you do because the radio or the tv or the media has explained what you're doing in terms of as a business but secondly you've got to make this work you've got to make this work for the rest of new zealand because this is so important and so very quickly for us this changed from something that was just about uh, an intellectual i'll be honest it was a bit of an intellectual experiment to think well is this is this unproductivity am i seeing it in my own business and it very quickly morphed to something when you started to realize that that actually you know there's something more in this this starts to address a lot of the issues that we have in the modern world and the modern workplace and the the impact on the company has been uh, remarkably positive as a consequence. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to work for a trust company. But people do wake up in the morning and say, I want to work for an innovative business that's trying different things. So, you know, we become a much more um, attractive place to work as a consequence of the things that we're experimenting with and, and, and trying to put in place. So my futuristic mind is looking forward, you know, say 10 years. What do you think could be the global indirect benefits of the world changing to a four-day work week? Well, uh, well, first of all, we have, a, we have an epidemic sweeping the workforce across the world, and that's a stress and mental health epidemic. One in five... New Zealanders, one in four Brits, um, have some form of stress or mental health issue that is generally work-related. Uh, now, to put that in context, in the United Kingdom, that's 15 million person days lost a year as a consequence of that. So that has, and in New Zealand, we've just got this, the wellbeing budget, which really was, you know, about, tipping a whole pile of money into trying to address mental health. Uh, if you actually have more chance to rest and regroup and maybe not necessarily work a five-day but a two-day, day off, two-day, first it will take some of those issues out of the workplace. Um, and also what it will do is it will give people who aren't necessarily fully productive now who can't be productive over a five-day cycle. They can be productive over a two, one-day-off, two-day cycle. So I think that's one of the outcomes. It, the ability to take and reduce uh, employment-related stress and mental health, that is a biggie. You've then got uh, the environment. Um, if you can take 20% of cars off the road every single day, maybe 40% if you allow some flexible working at any point in time. You know, what does that do to pollution levels? It's the equivalent in the United States of taking 10 million cars off the road every single year. It also means that your corporate footprint goes down, your power usage goes down, um, internet usage, which itself, you know, has to be generated, that things go down. Um, and what you find bizarrely is people on their day off generally engage in 
less environmentally impact activities. It's, you know, spend more time with the family, more time at home, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it has a significant environmental impact. Um, if we go on to gender pay and, um, you know, female access to the C-suite, uh, a couple of things. You find that, that men have got to be liberated as well to take time off, to share the home duties. So if you put a four-day week in, you are saying to senior leaders, it's okay to take time off. It's okay to spend time with the family. In fact, better than okay. It's why we're doing this. And so that then means that care responsibilities can be shared more, more equally between men and women. Now, the other problem you have is often when women return to the workforce, um, the first thing they do after having a child is negotiate a four-day week and then do 100% of the work in a four days but only get paid for 80% of the time. And if you look at the gender pay gap in the UK statistics to hand, you broadly see no discernible gender pay gap up to age 40. And then at 40, around the prime returning to work period for women, you will see a, you know, 12 and a half, 15% difference in gender pay. So this will play to that as well. Um, and then the final thing is it's, of course, the gig economy. I mean, we, we deliver, we want flexibility supposedly in the modern workplace. And, and how we get that outside of traditional employment is to uh, accept a gig role because I can, quotes work when I want, end quotes, which, of course, is a long con. What's actually happening is you're working when the gig provider gives you a job. And if you don't do the job that they want when they want, you will gradually get worse and worse opportunities and shifts. And yet you will do that without the protection of the minimum wage, without the protection of uh, sick pay, holiday pay, uh, superannuation. There is clear evidence that nobody invests in you if you are running a gig job. And, and some of the statistics that have come out of the, you know, the Foundation for Young Australians, uh, looking at, you know, under 25s, with a you know material percentage, I think it's over thirty percent underemployed or unemployed and working multiple gig roles in order to uh, to 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 earn enough money. And, and so I think if we adopt a strategy like I'm proposing, you give that benefit of the fourth industrial revolution, which is actually time. You start to share the time benefit that that will make a material difference to our society. And, and, you know, we didn't start out arguing that that's what we thought was going to happen. Um, but suddenly you start to see, even in my company, you start to see the impacts of this across lots of different levels. So I'm hopeful that if we can get this movement to get global traction, Actually, it really does 
address some of the big issues facing the world today. I'm not saying it's it's the silver bullet, but it does help in a lot of uh, in a lot of those you know big issues that we have in in modern work. You've just recently launched Four Day Week Global. Mm. What will we see? What's the, the big end game that you're aiming for with this new project, a new company? Well, what would, first of all, we don't see. We don't sell four day weeks. So, uh, yeah, as you rightly say, we're over in we're over in Dublin, uh, helping with the launch of the four day week campaign in Ireland. Um, uh, sort of we're doing that in our spare time actually there isn't lots of spare time as a consequence of this so what we're re- recognizing is uh you know as as my partner charlotte says um you, you can only drink so much coffee because what happens is people come to us and say look we've seen you doing the four-day week um can we have a cup of coffee we need to have a chat see if it would work for us we're now in the story ran in 76 countries with a global audience of about four and a half billion people. We wrote a white paper that's been downloaded thousands of times by companies all over the world. The same story, the same issues come up every time I'm talking doesn't matter the jurisdiction. So what we've decided to do is, is there are two things that we think that the world needs. And number one is research. We were able to articulate the benefits of a four-day week because we had independent academic research that we ran alongside the trial and we were able to present those results to the board, to leadership, and obviously then to the wider audience. So what we want is more research. So one portion of what we're doing is we're setting up a couple of foundations whose purpose is to fund research. Um, and we are working with uh, universities like uh, the University of Oxford, University of Cambridge, um, in our own neck of the woods, uh, uh, Auckland University and Auckland University of Technology, um, and others around the world. And the idea is that we will, from the foundations, fund um, fund research that is both industry and business specific. The second is that we are going to create a network of consultants. Now, they will charge their own fees, but what we will do is clip the ticket and put that clip into the foundations to fund the research. And really what this is about is people who can come in and help businesses on the journey to a four-day week because there are two issues that we need here is one is the path to a four-day week how does a company implement it the second is to provide assurance to employees that this is a genuine move to a four-day 180 100 as we've talked about regime it's not uh, a trojan horse it's not something that's coming in to find a way to cut staff so the idea around this is is that we cannot, we just cannot meet the demand of people, companies all over the world wanting to do this. So we want to put an infrastructure in place and we want that infrastructure to help fund research. That research in turn will assist governments and unions and businesses and individuals to recognize 
the benefits of putting in place a four-day week. You know, it, it, it's more a function for me of saying you don't get many chances to change the world. And for better or for worse, we're starting to change the world with this. And we need to, A, be more effective at changing the world, but we've actually got to be able to do it in a much more structured way. At the moment, you know, it's involving Charlotte and I flying around a lot and literally drinking lots of cup of coffee and meeting a lot of people and talking to a lot of people. And and that's as good as it goes, but we need to get this on a more efficient and a, and a larger footing, frankly, because the demand is there. Um, we, you know, it's never, it's not going to be a, a business for us um, because we just believe in this now. We think that this is, is an important solution for, for the world, for business and for our society. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Whoa. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, probably, you know, the last time for the first time in a way, I, it, the, the last big thing I've done was this, which was ask why the hell the whole of our work practices that we've everybody had decided were the right way had asked the question why and and that's been this that's led to this extraordinary extraordinary journey of the last 18 months i mean i i think i have never ever done anything as meaningful in my career i've done innovative business stuff but not something if you'd asked me uh, you know 18 months ago you know would you be talking all over the world would you be you know on the agenda at the world economic forum would be would you be you know i mean the trade union uh, the labor party came out in the uk yesterday with a policy for a four-day week um, Russia has come out with a policy for a four-day week. Um, Ireland's about to, to launch it. The American unions came out last week. Every single one of those is turning around and name-checking Perpetual Guardian and what we did in New Zealand. Now, uh, there's never going to be uh, a bigger question that I've answered than this. This is just life-changing and not just for me it's life-changing you know potentially for 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 the world if we get it right you're just making me smile here because one i absolutely love what you're doing but you've also answered the second question which is the mm -hmm. one question that you would love to solve <laughs> so you have completed one and two and one go how do you <laughs> how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind uh, well, I have a I have a horrible cycle. I, uh, yeah, Charlotte always tells me that what happens is that I will get there will be an issue that will come up, and I will I will react not necessarily well to it, um, and then I go silent, and she, she says, you know, I sort of withdraw into myself for a, a period of time, 
And then I come out the other side and I'm going, and um, we could do this, 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 and this, and this. So I have, um, it's an ability to put something into a box. And so I know that my peak point of creativity usually is after a point of high stress. But to do, to, to crack it, I withdraw in and then come out. Now, um, I don't want to bring everything back to the four-day week, but but that's part of the problem, isn't it? As business leaders, we often have no time to think. Now, I do it, I internalize that process, but for people who don't internalize the process, what they actually need is time to think. So if you create an environment where you can withdraw into yourself and then come out, quite often that will be the point at which you will have peak creativity you know for myself it's it's a well-trodden path and everybody watch me watches me go off the deep end for a bit um keeps well out of my way for a a short period of time all knowing that i'm going to walk around the block calm down think about it come back and then have gone "Mm, why don't we do this and so that's always it's it's i think people who know me would say that that's probably it's a very well-trodden path and very well-signaled when I'm going into creative, a creative mode. I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation and I can continue talking for many hours on this, on this subject. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Um, well, um, depends on what topic, of course, but the four-day week has its own website, uh, www.fourdayweek.com um that's a you know for anybody interested in in looking at the four-day week we put onto that website uh the white paper research interesting articles bit of a how-to guide of how to do it um there's obviously contact emails on there as well um i'm you know we're always happy to have those cups of coffee um I have to say also as a business person, I mean, I'm always interested in, in doing different things. So uh, I usually do respond to people who email me or um, or, uh, or, or send me a, a message on LinkedIn. Uh, and if they, you know, if it's interesting or something that I, I think I can contribute, I, I'm always happy to give a little bit of time because I think, uh, especially now, people are, uh, you know, struggling with with how to grow and develop. Uh, you know, anybody can can grow and develop a, an unsustainable business, but how do you gr- grow and develop a, one that actually makes money and actually works is a little harder. So, you know, I'm uh, I, I haven't got oodles of time at the moment. The four day week has, has obliterated my four day week. Um, and, uh, but you know, that, that's, it's an area that I am always happy to, to talk to people about, because I think this is our, a genuine chance. I think we've seen so much traction in the last 18 months that I think we have a genuine chance to, to change the world here. And, uh, I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't give it a, a really good shot. Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You're you're talking about being a kid and and kind of, you know, 
going against the mold of what your family did. You know, they were artists, but you wanted to go a different path. And then mm. to find that curiosity and to, uh, and to challenge the status quo and think about things a little bit differently, that really shone through when you were going through that financial sector. Your ability to kind of understand and see the trends that are happening in the world and to finally, you know, at Perpetual Guardian, think, how can we change the way we do things? Why do we need to continue repeating and replicating the same things which keep ending up in the same results? The four-day week has been a phenomenon that has been amazing to watch. And, and as a Kiwi, I was very proud to see a, a company based in New Zealand really take it to the world and showcase something very, very unique and have the absolute trust in the ability to just give something a go and it's a it's a true testament to you that you've now taken that and gone you know what this is much bigger than just our organization this is just much bigger than me having an extra day a week we need to figure out how to solve some of the world's toughest problems and through conceptually changing the way we think about how work and life should be is now opening up a whole new world of other opportunities. So Andrew, thank you very much for sharing your, your wisdom, your belief, and your courageousness to really take on the world with our active CEO listeners. You're welcome. Very good to talk. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about leaders develop leaders. Leaders don't just lead people, they develop leaders. Learning how to recognize and most importantly develop potential and emerging leaders is important and absolutely crucial for the growth and succession of a company, organization, group or team. Being able to identify behaviors, attitudes and habits are more important than job-related skills when it comes to leadership. Facilitate the growth, support the leadership behaviors, and provide challenges to enhance your people's skills should be your number one priority. And remember that people buy people. People connect with people. So focusing on building that leadership capability so that you have a stronger presence and people love the people inside your organization. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.